Welcome to the Edge Talk Radio Network, your weekly source for information, empowerment, and connection. The Edge Magazine and its advertisers bring you inspired interviews and conversation on learning and healing, on our sacred journey, and on topics that expand beyond time and space. Now, welcome today's host. My name is Elise Markwam-Johns, and I'd like to welcome you to the May 7th, 2019 edition of Edge Talk Radio's monthly Learning Well program. Learning Well is sponsored by the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Just the other day, I was walking near a park close to our home, and I heard what I can only call a rather joyous squeal of a toddler who just slid down a slide. And I'll always remember the look of pure joy on the face of our golden retriever, Lucy, as she chased after a tennis ball. This is the joy of play. By definition, play is purposeless and it's fun. But as we become adults, taking time to play feels like pretty much a guilty pleasure, more of a distraction from real work and life. But as tonight's guest, Dr. Stuart Brown, has found play is anything but trivial. It's a biological drive is integral to our health as sleep or nutrition. In fact, our ability to play throughout life is an extremely important factor in determining our success and happiness. Dr. Brown has spent his career studying animal behavior and conducting more than 6,000 play histories of humans from all walks of life, from serial murderers to Nobel Prize winners. His book titled Play explains why play is essential to our social skills, adaptability, intelligence, creativity, ability to problem solve, and more. Play is hardwired into our brains and is the mechanism by which we become resilient, smart, and adaptable people. Play also has profound implications for child development and the way we parent, education and social policy, business innovation, productivity, and even the future of our society. Dr. Brown will be with us shortly to share his important research and his work on this topic. But before he joins us, I'd like to take just a moment to tell you about the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College, which is the sponsor for our Learning Well programs. The center offers literally hundreds of classes for individuals and businesses in the fields of traditional health as well as integrative and holistic health. And here's just a quick sampling of some of the upcoming classes that might be of particular interest. Tomorrow on Wednesday, May 8th from 6.30 to 9, there will be a class focusing on herbalism titled Herbalism, Herbs for Women's Reproductive Health. In this course, students will learn about herbs for premenstrual and menopausal comfort, herbs that aid during pregnancy and lactation, hormonal balance, and concerns such as libido and polycystic ovarian syndrome. On Monday, May 13th, from 6.30 to 9, there's a class about holistic nutrition, which will focus on healing applications of nutrition. This class will cover how particular foods and supplements have been and can be utilized to support health in the face of serious challenges, such as cancer, autoimmune disorders, depression, anxiety, insomnia, endocrine issues, and loss of bone density. Healing Touch Level 2 classes on energetic patterning and clinical application will be held on Friday, May 31st from 8 to 5 and Saturday, June 1st from 8 to 4. 
In this class, class members will learn to conduct an intake interview and learn plans that will help them integrate techniques from the previous foundations course with techniques from this course to develop useful applications. Some of the topics covered will be assessment skills, clinical application of energetic interventions, repatterning of spinal health, and assisting patients in expanding their heart energy. There will also be a seven-week Tai Chi for health class beginning on Monday, June 10th, which will be held from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. This class is recommended as a starting point for your Tai Chi journey and will introduce Dr. Lamb's simplified sun-style Tai Chi in a safe and supportive environment. And on Wednesday, June 12th, from 5 to 7.30 p.m., there'll be a wild plant walk, which will include identification for food and medicine of herbs and plants. Students will learn to identify and appreciate basic edible and medicinal uses of wild plants and shrubs of the late summer and early fall. If you'd like more information about these or other classes and programs at Normandale Community College, please call 952-358-8343 or simply email Normandale at normandale.edu forward slash CE. Well, without further delay, I'd like to introduce our guest, Dr. Stuart Brown. Trained in general and internal medicine, psychiatry, and clinical research, he first discovered the importance of play by discovering its absence in a carefully studied group of homicidal young males, beginning with the University of Texas Tower mass murderer, Charles Whitman. He later became founding clinical director and chief of psychiatry at Mercy Hospital and Medical Center and an associate professor at UCSD in San Diego, California. Over the course of his clinical career, he has interviewed thousands of people to capture their play profiles. His cataloging of their profiles demonstrated the active presence of play in the accomplishments of the very successful and also identified negative consequences that inevitably accumulate in a play-deprived life. As he ended his clinical career, he believed that play could be the key to discovering the giftedness that is in everyone, but he realized that identifying the importance of play hadn't really been fully revealed. So in 1989, when he left clinical medicine, he decided to pursue play in depth. To gain insights into human play, he turned to animal play research, and with the support of the National Geographic Society and Jane Goodall, he observed animal play in the wild. He became acquainted with the premier animal play experts in the world and began to see play as a long-evolved behavior important for the well-being and survival of animals. He subsequently came to understand that humans are also uniquely designed by nature to enjoy and participate in play throughout life. Dr. Brown, we're so delighted you can be with us this evening. Thank you so much. Delight to be here. Well, you first became involved with the study of play when you were brought in to help determine the motive behind the University of Texas Tower Murders in 1966. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with this tragedy, please share a little bit with us about what happened and how you became involved with this study. All right. Well, I was quite surprised when uh, I got a call in my office at Baylor College of Medicine on August 1st, 1966, from the governor of Texas, who said that uh, he had heard I'd done some work in violence during my training, and would I be involved in a commission to try and understand why that day a 25-year-old ex-Eagle Scout, ex-Marine, 
architectural engineering student with no legal history, had climbed the Texas Tower with an armory, killed his wife and mother the night before, killed 14 people with that deadly accurate sniper fire, and wounded 32, and was then himself gunned down by uh, very courageous individuals who uh, ended this tragedy. And this was then the largest mass murder in the history of the U.S. And uh, I thought to myself as the dean and the governor, dean of the medical school and the governor uh, talked to me about this, that it was tough enough to figure out what the motives are when people are in the office trying to tell you their life histories. How are we going to do this with somebody who was already dead? But for the next uh, 20 weeks or so, we were able with the Texas legislature's approval to have unlimited funding and got a hold of any expert that we thought would be would add some depth to the understanding of this young man. And we developed a very, very uh, detailed protocol which involved three generations of genetic history. And I won't go into the whole uh, uh, protocol, but it was a, a really remarkable uh, way of learning the details of an individual's life. And Charles Whitman had a father who was very disturbed, very overbearing, very brutal, and uh, who suppressed intensely this, this young man and little boy, when as a little boy, suppressed his urges to play. Whitman was a very bright 140 IQ individual, and he learned to mimic what he thought his father thought was important, but hide a lot of his own inner life. His inner life erupted under intense stress from which he had experienced from, for six months or so before the final event at the tower, and he had diaries which revealed some of his torment. And he had uh, confided to a psychiatrist at the University of Texas in April, which is months before the event, that he was having these intense urges to go up into the tower and shoot people like pigs. Mm -hmm. So it was very tragic. And what we determined, the commission was made up of uh, individuals from all stripes of medicine and law enforcement, even graphology to study his handwriting. And uh, the determination was that the suppression of play, which had been so uh, intense throughout his life, even by phone from his father, who was at a distance from the University of Texas during the last months, that uh, he did not experience the normal protective uh, things that good play provides uh, developmentally and growing up, and that he had harbored intense uh, violent impulses and hidden them from, from the world, which then erupted in this final event, which was terribly tragic. So that sensitized me as a young psychiatrist to the importance of play, but I didn't, at that time, I didn't really, uh, it was, this seemed like an aberration. He was unusual. So thereafter, then we did some more structured research with a team in the Huntsville uh, prison where we identified uh, 26 young mur murderers whose only crime was homicide 
and compared them as much as we could with matched controls and comparisons. And lo and behold, found that when we compared the play histories of the murderers with the play histories of those they were matched with, that they were vastly different, that they were different in quality and quantity, and that there was significant play deprivation, which pervaded, was pervasive in the life of the murderers, but not in the comparisons. And then I was principal investigator of another study after, uh, after that, which involved uh, analyzing uh, the life histories and the driving habits of felony drunken drivers or felony drivers who were serially killed over the course of a year in Harris County, Texas, and their play histories as compared to the comparisons were, were also significantly different. So these Whitman, the young murders and the drunken drivers sensitized me to the importance of play, but I didn't quite at that time know fully, nor did anyone else, uh, how it may or may not contribute to and be linked to violence. So that led me to a long career uh, to study play, which Elise so nicely summarized in the introduction. First of all, I just have to ask you, how, how do you define play? Well, I would... It, it's not easy to define. It's a little like love. It's it's something that is pre verbal in its origins, but it's something that's voluntary. It's done for its own sake. It, it uh, it's fun. It uh, takes the player out of a sense of anxiety or time, and the outcome of the play itself is less less important than the experience of play. So uh, it, it, if you look at it in, in some depth uh, in the animal world, it really is a different state of being from all others. I was asking you uh, before we went on the air about one of the things that I was curious about especially is uh, people who have hobbies um, where they sort of can sort of pull themselves into that hobby and they really feel that they're part of a flow. And the example I was sharing with you is that I love to sew. And when, I, when I'm in that mode and when I'm creating something, I just feel differently. And I ask you if that is play. And you do, you do define that kind of thing as play. I think it definitely is play. I think whatever engages us intensely from our own deep intrinsic motivation and pr produces a sense of mood elevation and optimism and where you kind of lose sense of yourself and you, you're, you're almost outside of time's arrow. I think that it doesn't have to be a exuberant or joyous, uh, loud kind of uh, physical phenomenon. <clears throat> you can read a novel and be fully at play. Uh, and and not necessarily be physically active. So I think what you described for you is play, is, is a flow, is play, is definitely getting into that state of play, and it, it's good for us when we do. And you, in your study of animals, um, you determined that there were various types of play, and I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that and also 
is that true for humans as well? That there, it sounds like from what you were just saying that there certainly are different types of play. But how does that, how does that play out? If you'll excuse that word, <laughs> in the animal world. Well, I think you, if you were to take a, a bunch of puppies, let's say a Labrador Retriever has six or seven puppies, and you observe them in their natural setting, they will have some will be barkers and some will be. Uh, closer to their mothers and others will start retrieving early. The temperament and personality of the puppies, and they could say the same thing for those of us that are human, uh, begin to determine if we're allowed our natural tendency to have certain types of preferences. And, you know, there are patterns of play that are body play or play with objects and toys. There, there are individuals who only enjoy socialization. There are highly imaginative people where imaginary play is, is it. There are loners who, who play with uh, four-leaf clovers or, or collect stamps. And, and you know, there, there is this mosaic of play that isn't the same for everybody. But I think what is the same is this sense of spontaneous engagement and, and joyfulness that's a part of the play state. And you just touched on something that I also was curious about. You were talking about things like, um, you know, stamp collecting or something, again, that gets us into the flow but may not necessarily be that rough and tumble that we associate with play. Are there any stronger benefits to playing with others as opposed to sort of that um, solitary play that we've we've talked a little bit about? I think that's a tough question because, I think everybody, we're a social species, and the particularly developmentally in early life, if you engage in rough and tumble play, sort of chase and escape or uh, tag or these, this sort of thing that are, that are fairly uh, common worldwide in kids that are preschool, I think that social play learning is important. But it's also important to honor the temperamental differences that kids have. Some kids are introverted and, and shy and, and are overwhelmed by too much in the way of social play, and, and their play is just as valuable for them if, if it is collecting or dealing with things that are not necessarily social. But I think the competency that we we long for as adults is it's necessitated in part by participating with others so that I think, you know, as a social species, particularly if you see animals that are a social species, dogs, cats, uh, squirrels, ferrets, rat, even rats, that, uh, that, that when you, artificially in a laboratory setting uh, interrupt their social play, they don't have uh, as competent uh, the ability to deal, uh, to reproduce, reproduce normally, to handle aggression or stress normally. So I think the question is to, so some social play that's, I, I think, uh, guided and supervised by a loving adult is important even if the temperament is shy and uh, introverted. Uh, otherwise, play happens uh, normally, and it just 
comes from within the human being. It's it's interesting you should touch on that because I just finished reading Susan Cain's book called Quiet about introversion, and right. it, it it certainly makes sense that some people are more comfortable with that sort of more physical team kind of play than than others. Um, I, you have also said that play is the key to unlocking one's own innate personal talents. Can you talk a little bit about that? Maybe share some examples with us. Sure. Uh, I think this is a really important point that I don't think has gotten across fully to our culture. But let's, you know, if I go back to my family practice days when I was doing some obstetrics and gynecology and and being able to deliver babies and then watch them in a newborn nursery, which back in the early days when I was initially in practice, uh, the, the Kids would stay in the hospital, mother would stay in the hospital, and the kids in the newborn nursery for five or six days. And the newborn nursery nurses would opine about the early personality traits of the newborns. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, these are sleeping, pooping uh, little kids. They, they don't have any personality, but they do. And she, the nurses would point out that there were preferences for being touched, being held, listening to music, uh, being rocked, uh, and and some, you know, being having oral stimulation. So the intrinsic patterns that show preference really reveal themselves often very early. They're very obvious by six or seven months. If you have a little baby at six or seven months that safe and dry and on a blanket and the mother is above the baby smiling at it and the baby has a let's say a a bright handkerchief or a toy beside him or her and the baby turns toward the the bright colored object and grabs it and then has spontaneous glee just from the grabbing of the object more so than the smiling mother you've got a cue that that's a preference, a play preference for that little baby. And as that baby emerges further and further developmentally, those preferences and patterns of preference usually stay. And as they are nourished by an observing, caring parent or caretaker, then the innate talent seems to follow what produces the joy and the gleefulness spontaneously on the part of the child. So it's not as, as cut and dried as this because none of us has a world that's that simple. But it, it does, that part of parenting, I think, would be, who is my child? What do they really love? What, are, what produces joy on them? What can I do to intensify this joyfulness? And that, as a guide to parenting, I think is a, unif- a unifying kind of uh, mutual task that both enjoy. Mm, that's, that's really fascinating. In some of your presentations, you show photos of a polar bear and some tethered huskies. Please tell us what we'd normally anticipate, and I think most of us can probably <laughs> understand what we'd normally anticipate would happen in a situation like that. But what actually did happen? I found that fascinating. Well, it, it's one of my favorite stories. In 1991, when I was working for the National Geographic, 
a German photographer went up to Churchill, Manitoba, a north area of the Hudson Bay, to photograph a, a, a trapper who had 30 sled dogs tethered, but who also was uh, kind of a romantic uh, setting. And while he was set up to photograph these tethered sled dogs, along came a wild male polar bear that was not out on Hudson Bay because there was no ice. It was early November. And they all thought that the bear was going to eat, eat the dog that was closest to him. And the dog somehow signaled by play bow and wagging tail to the bear that this wasn't going to be a fight to the death, that they were going to play. And the bear got the message. And the bear originally had looked like it was going to eat the dog. It was in a predatory gait. But the two of them suddenly began this wild dance of rough and tumble play and tossing up in the air and wrestling with each other. And to the delight and, and surprise of the photographer and the, uh, that bear came back to this same area, played with the same dog for about three weeks. And then the ice came in and out went the bear to kill seals as they popped their head up through the ice in Hudson Bay and, and the carnivore that it was to survive. So that was an example that there's something else going on in the evolutionary background of both the dog and the bear, which means that the play signals overrode, at least for this moment, and these moments, the hunger and the carnivorous uh, nature of the bear. And that, that was a, a remarkable thing. We published it, and I got lots of letters uh, after that publication where similar kinds of scenes had been seen by, by game wardens and wildlife people where uh, cross-species play that wasn't expected between, for example, cheetah, cheetahs and gazelles in Kenya and, and a hippopotamus and a, and a turtle in, in, uh, off the coast of Africa. So they're, they're, the power of play signaling can have a profound effects and we are wired as humans with the ability to respond to those signals, not too dissimilar from the bear and the sled dog. That is one smart husky. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah, genius husky. <laughs> you alluded to the fact uh, earlier, talked a little bit about your study of at-risk populations, which has contributed to your understanding of the importance of play. Can you Tell us a little bit more about that, what you found out, what kinds of things um, were involved in that study. Well, I think it, this is a kind of a compendium of the all the play histories I'd taken during those 25 years or so when that was part of my clinical uh, habit. And what you notice is that when there are is fairly profound loss of play in adulthood or play deprivation, that there is a, a kind of a smoldering depression that seems to be a part of the life when play is not at all a part. That is, their, their lack, lack of optimism, often a rigidity and 
the thinking processes, uh, often a uh, ideologic uh, fixity, which gives means there's no ambiguity, and life is filled with ambiguities for most of us. And so you begin to sense that there is are consequences when play is seriously missed and benefits when it's present. And the, uh, the earlier the serious deprivation occurs, the more profound is the outcome. You know, a kid who is seriously uh, play-deprived often has uh, both mood and, and habit and other kinds of difficulties that may be uh, contributed to both by play, absence of play, and by the uh, other environmental abusive uh, things that happen to them. So I don't have a, I, I can give you the com- contrast to that. If you look at, I had the opportunity to interview a series of Nobel laureates, and the majority of them can't tell the difference between work and play. They're, they're at play when they're in the laboratory or doing their work. And uh, uh, that was very profound, I thought. It's interesting you alluded to the fact that the earlier play deprivation takes place, the more serious it can be. Is there is there any way of knowing or has there been any research on is there like a sweet spot where after that point, if you do have play, it doesn't matter? Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know if I'm expressing that very well. I, I, I don't. I think there's a lot of individual variation, and the part of the beauty of play itself is that we all have a play nature, uh, unless we're seri- you know, unless there's serious brain damage or something. We all have a play nature, so you know, I'm thinking of a woman who'd been abused in multiple foster homes and, and a, a terrible life. And I saw her when she was probably in her 40s. And she said, Dr. Brown, I just don't know how to play. And we found out that she did like jazz music. And so she was able to get kind of regain her play nature by standing on a pedestal with a baton in front of her radio or stereo and conducting jazz music and getting, you know, getting into it with joy. So we, you know, I think it it can be therapeutic at virtually any level, including uh, assisted care homes and even dementia units. Uh, if you can evoke a play that works for the individual, it tends to be therapeutic. Mm. I know there's certainly been some studies about the importance of music in terms of people who are suffering from dementia. Um, I'm sure Sure. that piece enters into it. You've also talked about how important um, the changes are. They're actual biological functions of play. They're physiological functions of play. Can you talk a little bit about how it changes our body and our brains? Yeah, the best. The best data on this comes from animal play because it's not ethical to uh, deprive human play. But if, for example, you uh, have two populations of of highly playful rats, laboratory rats, and they are very playful, surprisingly, uh, and you stop the play artificially in one group, and allow the other group to play, 
and then you present each of those uh, rat colonies with cat odor. And cats, uh, uh, rats are hardwired to fear cat odor, as you would expect. So both populations head for the, the, the haven that's theirs when they smell the cat odor. And if you measure the stress responses, both of them are highly stressed by this odor. The ones that play, however, respond uh, and get over the stress much quicker and return to the normal, normal rat behavior much quicker than those whose play has been interrupted. As a matter of fact, when the play is severely interrupted, some of those rats will not even attempt to uh, survive. They're so stressed. So that the handling of stress is apparently uh, really improved by play behavior. And there's every clinical evidence that uh, human beings who, are, who get into a play state after they've been stressed or, or when they're in high-stress situations manage the stress better. But I don't think it's been uh, – if it's been measured, I don't know about it. So I'm curious, too, does our sense of play as humans differ from an animal's sense of play, or are we pretty similar in that? No, we're different in, in a number of ways. I think the uh, – the term neoteny, N-E-O-T-E-N-Y, describes the biology of the human. If you were to look at a, uh, let's say, a mountain goat and watch their development, they play a lot when they're kids, when they're young. But when they get reproductive, they butt heads or they change their behavior and their play doesn't amount to much because uh, other things are more significant, mainly uh, raising offspring or defending territory. Humans, however, have a longer childhood, have a longer period of learning than any other animal, and they have the ability to play throughout their lifetime, which is part of what the term neoteny means. It means that there is a stretching of, the, of, the, of immaturity into old age. And probably the best analogy I can think of to make this a, a bit more evident is to think about dogs and wolves. If you were to take a Labrador retriever and watch their life cycle, they're playful in old age. They retrieve in old age. They have a puppy-like temperament even in old age. They are a neotenous species, whereas a wolf, well, double scent mark, only certain alpha males reproduce. They have a strict uh, wolf pack hierarchy where there's a sentinel wolf and, and other kinds of uh, divisions of labor. So they have a more specialized kind of adulthood. They are not neotenous. Human beings as compared to chimpanzees or bonobos or, or wool or uh, mountain gorillas, uh, have a prolonged childhood that really uh, gives us flexibility even into old age. And our brains uh, reflect that. They're much more flexible and uh, uh, capable of adding new, new connections in old age as compared to most animals. 
You know, I was thinking the other day that one of the benefits after sleep deprivation that you have as a parent is that you you sort of be, you almost have to become more playful as you are dealing with a child growing up. It you can't help but be more playful yourself. And I think that's one of the advantages of having an, a a pet later on in life after your kids are gone. That that pet as you say can demonstrate play throughout and I think it's a it's a therapeutic process for people as well. Hey, very well said. No, it's so true. I, you know, I'm a grandparent, and so certainly uh, when my grandchildren were younger, they would draw you into play. And, and uh, got a wonderful female dog named Cookie, who is, you know, if you're having a tough time in the morning, Cookie comes and has to say hello and lick you all over and want to play with the ball. And in a moment, in a moment, you're up, you're upbeat and ready to go. So yeah. you're absolutely. But my husband would has told me on several occasions that he never saw me laugh as much as when we had our dog and she we would get into a, a rope play in the morning, uh, and it, it's just it's such a sense of joy for everyone involved, animal and owner at that point. Uh, I wanted to also talk with you about a really fascinating uh, teacher by the name of Nate Johnson, who taught mechanics in high school and who found out that his students were no longer able to solve problems. And he came up with a theory. Could, can you fill us in on that? I think it's just fascinating. Well, yeah, this is kind of, kind of an interesting but long story. His name is Nate Jones. I, I missed, missed uh, his name in my book, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Nate, Jones, Nate Jones has a garage in Long Beach, which, in which he's a master mechanic. He also has a daughter who's a teacher in elementary school and a good friend, who is a neurologist who's written a book called The Hand, Frank Wilson. Well, Nate uh, confided in Frank that he was noticing kids that he had volunteered to help in his garage for the last five or six years or even longer seemed unable to three-dimensionally see the problems that engines had and where they were not as good at understanding and fixing cars as they had been earlier. And he theorized that this was because they were no longer tinkering with their hands. And Frank, who had written this book on the hand, has shown that they're the sort of the paleoanthropology of humans is a story of our opposable thumb and hands and that there is such a phenomenon as hand-brain co-evolution, that the hand participates in increasing connections in the brain. Frank's a good Stanford neurologist, now retired. So Nate and Frank wrote a paper, and the summary of that paper got in the Long Beach News, and the head of human resources of JPL and NASA read this article and said, huh, I wonder. I'm having trouble, said the HR guy, that I'm in hiring really good researchers, even though they they have impeccable credentials from Caltech or MIT or Stanford or UCLA. And I'm quite certain that the researchers who are retiring, that I need them need to be replaced, were very, very good with their hands in addition to having a very good education. 
And sure enough, he found that that was the case when he dug into it further. So he shifted his hiring uh, to always include as part of the history, even if they were summa cum laude from Harvard or someplace, did they tinker and use their hands and build things when they were kids and continue to use their hands? And he found what Frank had found in his research as a neurologist, that three-dimensional thinking and problem-solving is better among the tinkerers than the non-tinkerers. So that's kind of the NASA and Nate Jones uh, story. I want to go back for a second because you you talked about place signals uh, of animals. Can you talk a little bit more? I mean, does that vary from species to species, or is there is there a lot of consistency for that? And then, what about place signals in humans? Well, I think there's consistency in in in, in a single species. A dog, for example, goes into a play bow. A dog will will have a certain kind of fainting, f e i n t, when they're uh, body activity is playful, you know, but and so that signal says I want to play, and you know when they're in that posture that that they're not they're not about to harm you or defend territory. In uh, other animals, there are a lot of uh, there's cross species play is the play chase, for example, is communicated between birds and all kinds of mammals uh, where they'll chase each other. And human beings, chase and escape games are very common. The play face in humans is, you know, smiling with up, upper uh, lifting of the upper eyelids and, and the body movements that go along with that, the hand, hand wave. But there are some cultural, uh, some cultural learning that I think makes not all humans have the same play signals, but they all have play responses once they understand the signals. So there is a common language of play that animals and humans have that is what I would say is hardwired into our brains, but the, the triggers are somewhat different. Hmm. And you've said, too, that the basis of human trust is established through play signals. Can you tell us a little bit what you mean by this? Well, if you if we were to go back to the very beginning of, of human interaction, and you have, let's say, a one-month-old or two-month-old infant, and a mother or caretaker that is staring at that infant and holding, holding him or her, and they look at each other's, eyes and lock eyes and something magical happens when they do that what happens is that there is a joyful eruption emotionally of both the mother and the infant and that joyful eruption is associated with a sense of safety and trust and if you were to do brainwave studies when that moment occurs you would find that there is in the right cortex of each, the mother and the baby, a synchrony of rhythm, which is associated with that joyfulness. And uh, a researcher by the name of Alan Shore has done some beautiful work over time to show that that, that establishment, which he calls attunement, uh, is a necessity for ongoing uh, 
rapid development of trust and of safety on the part of the infant, and that that quality, which is also the, the eruption of joy, is kind of the basis of, of play that we all feel. If I see an old friend that I haven't seen for 30 years or more, and we were close before, there is often an upsurge of joy and, and a feeling of safety and trust just from seeing that friend. I think most of us have had that experience. And that's part of the kind of the wiring that's into us as far as safety and trust are concerned. When that doesn't happen, when there's a psychotic mother or a damaged baby or illness or trauma or anxiety or things that are overwhelming, then that quality of safety is missing. And I, so I think the trust, safety, and play are, they go together. They're not the only things that are, that are produced, but they're very, very central and important. I'm curious, and I don't know if this is something that would necessarily have been studied, but as you were talking, I was wondering, does it matter if that sense of play comes from a mother or a father? Uh, like you mentioned, the the Texas Tower um, murderer had really had issues with his father, particularly. Does does that? How does that play out? Well, I think the father was so omnipresent in the life of Whitman. And the father also was physically abusive to Whitman's mother. He fractured her skull with a two-by-four while she was pregnant with him. So he was, he was just a horror. And, and she was passive and, and didn't have the resources to extricate herself from that abuse. So although she may have had some loving feelings, which I'm sure she did, for Charles Whitman, I think the the intensity and energy of the father kind of overrode her uh, maternal warmth. But uh, in most instances, uh, there'll be, there's enough, it doesn't take a whole lot of play, a whole lot of safety to give a child a, a sense of, uh, that, that the world's a, safe place to live in and that life is worth living. I think Whitman really had a, a, a depressed, cynical, sad childhood and life. And if you look at most of the school shooters, not just Whitman, suicide was a p- component of the homicide. So the homicide-suicide mixture is, is I think, uh, part of their profile, and I think play deprivation is also part of their profile. One of the things that I alluded to in the introduction was the fact that most of us, as we get older, uh, we become obviously a lot less focused on play. Other, Other things take precedence in our lives. Do you have any guidelines, any thoughts, any recommendations on how we can, as adults, can recapture our playful spirits? Well, I think you bring up a a point that's really significant in the culture because I look upon play hygiene for adults who have lost their play as something that is as necessary as a good diet, a good night's sleep, or 
cleanliness, that it's, it's really a fundamental part of who we are. And usually we can, I mean, what you described in your getting into the zone, uh, thank goodness for you. Uh, I think if we find what produced the joyfulness and glee in our childhood and can meditate on that and find ways in our adult life to bring some of that back and to then expand that and to realize that that's as important in our life as a good night's sleep so that we prioritize play as a public health given is really an important part of public health. I think we would have uh, beneficent communities. I think it would, you know, we're not going to create a utopian world, but I think it would make a real, really real difference. I mean, imagine if Congress decided that they weren't going to talk with each other or try and settle the, uh, the existing divisions until they had a drink and had an evening where they danced and played with each other. I think it would be, uh, I think they would have a different kind of problem-solving mentality. So that I think uh, finding your play, finding a way of, of uh, experiencing it is sort of an individual health responsibility. But, you, but our culture does not tend to see it that way. And yet the biology of play and, and the seeing how what play deprivation does to our animal friends objectively says to me this is a really important component of who we are as people and really a significant uh, part of parenting and, and corporate and educational life. And the other thing that just strikes me as you talk about that is that if we go back into our own histories and look at what we loved to do as a child, um, I, I think bringing some of those things forward um, really can make a difference in our lives. I remember a class that I taught once. It was actually a stress management class. And one of the things I asked the students to do was to write out their ideal day. This was an exercise taken from Barbara Shear in her book called Wishcraft. And one of the things, fascinating responses that one woman had was that she said she almost was shed, shedding tears as she talked about this. She said, as a young girl, I loved being around horses, and I haven't had that for years and years and years, and I'm definitely going to try and put some of that back in my life. I just think that can make such a difference to how joyful we feel is trying to recapture what it was uh, that really did bring us joy as a child and, and somehow implementing at least a little bit of it in our adult lives. You're right on. I think that's, that's exactly uh, the, way we, the way we can uh, recapture and, and have some of the joy, and it makes a huge, huge difference when that happens. Uh, there's a whole, whole different way you relate to those you're close to, and you know, you, if somebody cuts you off in traffic and you've got enough play in your, that in your life, you tend to say, "What a jerk!" Whereas if you're play deprived, you usually feel like starting a fist fight or hoping you have a gun. You know, it's yeah. really different. Well, you also launched the National Institute of Play. Can you take a little bit of time and tell us a little bit about it, what you, uh, what your mission is, and, and what kinds of initiatives uh, that the Institute is working on? 
Sure. Uh, it's not. It's a small nonprofit. But when I finished the uh, couple of years that I spent on the in the wild with animal play, I also had had the chance to talk with animal play experts and play scholars worldwide that's sponsored by the National Geographic. And they were talking to each other. The play scientists somehow weren't in a, a good solid union with each other. So I established originally what was called the Center for Creative Adaptability, which became the Institute for Play, which became the National Institute for Play as a means of bringing these advice, I put a 25 or so experts together as an advisory board, and they began to talk with each other, and, and uh, I began to try and uh, bring, collate some of the information that they brought together. Well, fortunately, the Strong Museum in Rochester, New York, and a very creative uh, director there and a uh, Another man became an editor of what became the American Journal of Play. And the American Journal of Play is now a peer-reviewed organization, which has, I think, uh, extended what I had hoped to establish with, with the National Institute for Play well beyond what I could do as a single individual with a small nonprofit. What we're doing, what I'm doing now, is kind of like what we're doing on the air now. I'm advocating play science. I'm collating uh, some of the neuroscience in particular that doesn't tend to get, its, get itself into the uh, play literature because it's, it may not be uh, directly involved with play. You may have to sort of induce and see that this research has relevance to play. And I'm trying to uh, keep that in the front burner as well as do uh, a fair number of play advocacy things. But I'm 86 years old, so I'm not exactly out in the front lines anymore. Uh, I'm just essentially uh, hanging on to the information base we have and trying and enjoying the many discoveries that a lot of these play scholars and, and improvisational play practitioners and the like are doing with play. And, and the whole... Uh, emphasis on play and education, play and learning, play and emotional well-being, play and anti-depression. I mean, there's a lot of, of legs that it has, and, and uh, what part the National Institute can play in that is minor, but it's, I think, significant. Mm. Well, we've covered a lot of ground this evening. I thank you so much. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with us before we conclude? Well, keep on having fun. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. Know, you I, so think much. The, I think just the, the, you you conducted a lot of very good questions, and I am very appreciative. I think the uh, recognition that this is a if you're going to be fully human and live to the potential of your humanity, each individual life and collectively, don't leave out play. I think when you do, you're going to be missing something that nature has put there for millions of years as a part of our survival. And uh, without it, we may have more trouble being a good species. That's a great note to end on. I thank you so much, Dr. Brown, for being with us this evening. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. Wonderful to talk with you, Elise. Thank you. Because
because all of our Learning Well programs are archived, it is possible to access our conversations over the past several years with many previous Learning Well guests. So our guests have come from all areas of health and wellness spectrum and included such people as integrative cardiologist Dr. Joel Kahn, who is the author of The Whole Heart Solution, Amy Morin, best-selling author of 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, Leslie Michelson, founder and chairman and CEO of Private Health Management, uh, and Mr. Michelson is also the author of The Patient's Playbook, How to Save Your Life and the Lives of Those You Love, and also Janice Kaplan, writer, television producer, magazine editor, author of The Gratitude Diaries. You can listen to these and any of our other past conversations on Learning Well by simply Googling Edge Talk Radio Learning Well Archives. There's a huge array of people that we've talked with over the past few years, and I hope some of those conversations will be valuable to you. I'd also like to let you know about some of the guests who will be joining us on the next several Learning Well programs. Next month, on June 4th, we'll be talking with Dr. Christopher Winter. Dr. Winter has practiced sleep medicine and neurology in Charlottesville, Virginia since 2004 and has been involved with sleep medicine and sleep research since 1993. He's the author of the book, The Sleep Solution, Why Your Sleep is Broken and How to Fix It. Dr. Bill Manahan will be our guest on July 2nd. Dr. Manahan is regarded as a pioneer in integrative medicine and in the U.S., and he founded several integrative medicine centers and programs. Bill is passionate about a whole health approach, and we'll be talking about his special interest in the topic of how we must change the treatment of chronic disease in this country. And to conclude our summer programs, our August 6th guest will be Dr. Doug Fields, author of Why We Snap. We'll discuss the secrets of the rage circuit, how we can control it to reduce violence, and most importantly, how we can harness it for the pursuit of social harmony in our world. In closing, I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Stuart Brown, and I'd also like to thank the Integrative Health Education Center at Normandale Community College for sponsoring our Learning Well programs. Please tune in next month on Tuesday, June 4th at 6 p.m. Central Time for a conversation with our guest sleep expert, Dr. Christopher Winter. And if you enjoy Learning Well, Please help us spread the word about our Learning Well programs by encouraging at least one other person to join us for an upcoming program. Thank you so much for being with us tonight, and we hope you can tune in on Tuesday, June 4th, for our conversation with sleep expert, Dr. Christopher Winter. Until then, good night and stay well. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.